Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University, and welcome to class. Hey, everybody, this is Sean. Just finished up another fantastic interview. Uh, before we get to that, Garrett, it's been a little depressing around the house now that you moved out. Uh, where are you up to, and what are you doing? Yeah, I'm in Pittsburgh right now. My girlfriend flew out to Colorado, drove back with me. I think we made one stop in the middle just outside of Kansas. Um, been here for like a week now. I think I got two more weeks until I go back to school out in Long Island, New York. So we're just chilling here. Um, haven't been able to skate yet, but, uh, you know, doing my workouts and uh, just been hanging out. But it's been a good time. It's going to be the first year of that new program, new Division One program, Long Island University. Are you excited for that? Are you a little nervous? Brand new culture? Yeah, I'm really excited just to be a part of uh, something new, and I think it's going to be really cool to be able to be a staple for that program and hopefully set the tone for um, a winning culture and be able to develop to develop that. So I'm really pumped for it. Yeah, that's awesome to hear. Getting into our interview, we had a great guest on today. He really opened up to us. He had a great career on the outside that everyone would assume, oh, this guy's life is perfect. And the exact purpose of this podcast is to show you, no, it's not. Yeah, he had this tremendous NHL career, but you're going to hear there were some real demons and a lot of things he had to overcome along the way. Garrett, what did you think about the interview today? Yeah, Rich was great. I was uh, really surprised at how much he opened up to us. He really dove in deep into some of these dark topics and I'm sure some of these things were, you know, thrown into his closet and he really dug in, or dug in there and, and pulled them out for us. Um, as you mentioned, unbelievable NHL career. We can't thank him enough for coming on and really opening up. He, he dives into a lot of topics that are very hard to talk about for, for a lot of people, but I think that they can be related to in a lot of ways. And as you mentioned earlier, everybody thinks that these professional athletes live these perfect lives, but they're regular people like we are too. And, um, you know, people find outlets and find certain ways to cope with maybe the adversity that they're going through or the struggles of their life. And he unfortunately leaned on drugs and alcohol heavily. Um, and you'll hear more about that in the interview. We want to say thank you to Connor Caro, too, for helping set this interview up. If you guys know anyone who would have a great interview, an interesting interview, please shoot us their information and we'd love to hear more about their story. Let's kick it on over to Rich Pilon. The Colorado Rampage are excited to announce a player development partnership with Power Edge Pro Hockey. PEP's reactive countering training concept is the type of innovative skill development that will greatly impact our organization. Developing players to the next level is the Colorado Rampage's number one priority, and incorporating PEP hockey into our training will help us get there. Visit their website at corampage.com. That's C-O-R-A-M-P-A-G-E.com. Be better today than you were yesterday and join the herd. Today's guest was drafted 143rd overall in the 1986 NHL entry draft by the New York Islanders. He played a 15-year NHL career for three teams, the Islanders, Rangers, and St. Louis Blues. Today, he is the head coach of the Weyburn Red Wings of the Saskatchewan Junior Hockey League, and he is one of the three players depicted in a 4,700-pound bronze statue in front of the Pittsburgh Penguins home rink. Thank you for joining the podcast, Rich Pilon. Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me. What was it like growing up in St. Louis, Saskatchewan, and how did you get started in hockey? Um, started well. There's not much to do in St. Louis, Saskatchewan. Actually, there's a, it's a town of 500. Oh wow! Um, so very, it's a village basically. And uh, I started played a lot of more skinny, like on the road kind of hockey. And then I didn't start skating until I was nine. You know, I had, we played on outdoor rinks and that, but I didn't really play hockey until I was nine years old. So we like Adam hockey is what we call it here, nine and 10 year olds. So um, basically just because there was not a lot of, not lots to do in St. Louis, right? So, uh, you know, small town by the river and uh, close to a somewhat of a center, a bigger center of like 50,000, which is Prince Albert, Saskatchewan, where I did play my junior career and my midget hockey. Um, but that was basically it. And that just kind of, you know, always watched hockey and loved watching. My two teams were Montreal and the New York Islanders. There were teams I watched in the, in the, when, I was little, when I was smaller. Okay. Were you expecting to be drafted or was the NHL always a goal for you? Um, you know what? I, I don't, I think I always wanted to play in the NHL, but I th- you know, the ignorance of, uh, you know, we were, we were pretty poor growing up. So, you know, we had, you know, we were, uh, we weren't very well off and, so equipment and skates was definitely hard to get. 
for myself. Um, a lot of a lot of was always used or given to me. Um, always believed I was gonna, you know, it's a kid's dream to play in the NHL, but. The difference back then was the ignorance of, I wouldn't call it ignorance, but just not knowing where the, where the pecking order was, where you were in a depth chart and all that stuff that a lot of peop, families and players in today's world, they know where they are almost in a depth chart and they read into everything. And I never really read into anything because I didn't know any better. So because of that, it didn't matter. I just was happy being on the ice. So that helped me probably more than anything. And I wasn't expected to be drafted. No, I had no idea. Cause I was drafted out of midget hockey, not out of junior hockey. Okay. So I was mad. Like I was playing midget when I got drafted. So, which is pretty cool. You didn't let the small town or, you know, ignorance of not knowing uh, your way around hockey get in the way in your rookie season, in the NHL, you had 272 penalty minutes, which, which was the second most of your 15 year NHL career. What was your mindset like going out to defend your teammates at any cost necessary every night? Well, I think, you know, um, once you get up there and, and once what I realized was that, um, you know, coming up at the junior ranks was that, you know, I, I always was, you know, I've been fighting since I was nine or 10 years old, to tell you the truth. So I was, I was probably like, a, I was very small till I was 16. So I had to, I got beat up so much because I was so small and it was always the older guys beating me up, but I never went away. <laughs> you know, I was always in, I was, I was like a basically a little rat that just stayed in your face all the time, mm-hmm. you know, a bit of a hellraiser. And because of that, the older kids used to always beat the crap out of me. And then as I got up playing, as I grew, I got bullied when I was young. I became the bully in school and, you know, which I'm not proud of, but that's what happened it was like payback to the guys that were hard on me. And then when I started playing, playing, it was just my style of play of being aggressive and didn't, I didn't pick who I hit. It was always whoever was had the puck or in my, I guess, you know, if I, if that was my play was I, I loved to hit and I loved, and it wasn't even hitting. I always, one of my things was that I always hit to hurt and there's a difference. Right. And that was more my style is that I liked, I hate to say it, but I actually liked causing pain on, on other players. So. Um, which is kind of crazy, you know, in a crazy way. Yeah, you mentioned never going away. You took a puck to the eye during your second year of your career, which broke your orbital bone, almost leading to full loss of your central vision. Do you remember any of this incident, and how long were you away from the game? Well, here's the thing with that incident. That was one of those things that really tested your perseverance. That was my first time where I actually was tested because of Here's the thing, you 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 you're you have a good year and then you come into your you know your your second year and things are good, you're in your second year of your contract. Um all of a sudden this injury happens and you know you go from I was fortunate not to lose the eye because when it what happened was your eyes were in sync. And when I was in the hospital, I remember laying on the bed and you know, obviously I've got I've got an eye. My eye is in you know, the whole right side of my face was was a mess and I could hear the conversation with the two doctors and the one doctor wanted to take my eye and I could hear him saying, we're going to have to take it. And I, and I was like, please don't let them take it. I was just begging like God or whatever. Don't take this eye. Right. And they, they were going to, they were going to monitor it for the overnight. They decided to, ma- to manage it overnight to make sure the pressure wasn't going to make it. So it kind of basically blows up really is what it uh, happens. Right. And if that would have happened, it could have affected my good eye. That was the reason for taking it. They were thinking about taking it, but it never happened. So we don't have to go there. But I did lose all my central vision. And I remember coming back and a, and a, and a teammate of my roommate and teammate, Dean Chenoweth, who is, you know, who was now with the Carolina Panthers for, as it was my assistant coach or the Hurricanes, I mean, and I remember him telling me, cause I was thinking everything was okay. Right. Like, you know, I, I know my, I thought my vision was just going to come back. Even though they told me, I'm like, yeah, no, it'll come back, right? Then Dean, all of a sudden, him and I were at home, and he was like, Rich, like, do you know that your career might be done? I'm like, no. And he goes, well, he goes, your eye is not good. Like, you may never be able to play again, not at this level. So that was a big – now I started looking into it, started talking to our trainer, Eddie, and kind of figure what's going on. And he just said, Rich, he goes, it wasn't about me hurt, uh, losing my other eye. It was more about if I ever 
hurt someone or stuck somebody in the eye and they came back and sued me for not seeing them, then it would be just a trickle effect where I would now be suing the doctor for approval. So no doctor was going to basically uh, clear me. Right. So what happened was, uh, I don't know if you know the name Wesley Walker at all, a football player for the New York Jets. He was a wide receiver who had exactly the same injury I did. And this is like, if you want to talk coincidence or, or something being put in your right path. So when I started seeing the doctors and they were telling me I couldn't play, I had seen seven doctors, six doctors. And every time I went to the doctor, they had my file on them. And so when I get there, they already knew exactly what was wrong with me and what happened. And they would just say, listen, we can't clear you because, you know, because of you not be able to, you don't have full vision on your right side, even though I had all my peripheral vision. So then what happened was I just said, listen to our trainer. I said, I just want to go find my own doctor. And I uh, was talking with my agent at the time. We were like, okay, let's go into the city. And he gave, you know, I just looked up eye doctors and went into this freaking doctor who's bifocals or whatever were thicker than a Coke bottle. It was unbelievable. <laughs> and he's an eye doctor. And I walk in there and he look, he's, we start talking. I give him a little bit of background on what happened. He goes, okay. He goes, uh, let me do your vision test. He did my vision test. And he goes, you know, he goes, you must know Wesley Walker. I said, yeah. He goes, well, I cleared him to play for the Jets. Because he, he had lost vision and it's just like what you have. He has, exa- he has exactly the same thing. Wow. So he goes, oh, no problem. So then I got cleared to play. So then now I'm getting cleared, but I had to wear a visor, right? Well, not because I had to. I didn't have to, but I had to because if I didn't wear it, if I ever lost my good eye, I'd be in big trouble. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't, I, it wasn't because I had the insurance part was more to protect other people from me really is what it was. But, you know, I think back and see, you know, as I played now my career, I'm like going, Jesus, like, you know, out of respect for players, I, I always took off my helmet to fight. Right. Mm-hmm. So I end up, you know, even switching my, the way I punched, I went, I started becoming a lefty because when I would take off my, my helmet, I was worried about my left eye and I wasn't as worried as my right eye. So if I was going to take a punch, I wanted to take it on my right side. Yeah. So I started, so I started throwing lefts more and became more of a lefty, you know, after that, basically by, you know, I became left or right. Right. Yeah. But taking off my helmet was really actually kind of stupid when you think about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I got how, a black guy in that eye. So how long was this process of you know trying to find a doctor that was going to clear you? Um, you, uh, know, you seen six, doc- six doctors that pretty much said that they weren't going to clear you. Was there a point in time where you're like, okay, maybe this is it? Like I'm not going to get cleared to, to play, or did you always have a positive mindset? No, I was I was been sent on on plan. There was okay. nothing was going. There was a, I was going to find a way to play. And this took the whole so when the accident that when the injury happened in November it took the rest of that se- like the whole that whole season right, and going into the off season or actually was going into the new year because I had cleared just in the new year. So I had now basically I knew I wasn't going to be playing the rest of that season. We were close to we weren't making the playoffs. Blah blah blah. So um, they wanted me to I had to work on my hand eye really. To get, so what happens is when you lose central vision, you you lose a lot of your depth perception. So because of that, even in the hospital, I remember the first when I was in the hospital, I couldn't even pour like a glass of water. I'd be missing the whole thing. So even to this day, if I if I I have trouble catching stuff or what I do, even when I'm pouring stuff, I always tap on the glass to make sure where the glass is. Yeah. Because my depth, I've really got to focus. So what I did was I started seeing, you know, I, I was I was telling this story here about a, about a month ago, and I couldn't remember, and I still can't remember the the tennis guy. So what happened was I had to work on my depth perception. So they said, you know what, you're going to take tennis lessons. And I'd never played tennis. And in Long Island, that's a big thing because racquetball would have been too fast, right? So just working on, and it was going to be a good workout. So I show up at this like, tennis academy in, in, in Long Island. This is, this is funny. So I show up at this academy, and this guy, I called him Biff. It was his, I, that was his nickname. And this guy meets me, and I'm like, you know, he's a bit kind of feminine, right? Like he's, <laughs> he's Mike. And he meets me, and he's all excited to beat this pro athlete. And he's all excited that he's, you know, the Islanders have reached out to him and Blah, blah, blah. He actually used to be the tennis coach for Andre Agassi and Yvonne Lindahl. Oh, nice. Remember those guys? 
Yeah. I didn't know who those guys were. Okay. Oh. So I <laughs> so only found out after. So then we start, we go in the court and he's like, he, he looks at me. I'm, I'm in great shape. Right. And we start playing tennis. Well, I can't hit the ball. Like I am having like, and all I see across the way for the court is this guy going like throwing his hands up in the air, very <laughs> dramatic, like basically what the F have I got myself into yeah. after 20 minutes, he called me and he goes, just go home and I'll see you on Wednesday. He goes, I can't do this anymore. You're terrible. <laughs> so I walked out of this academy, just kind of like, Oh my God, I suck. Right. Wow. So the first day of me, I show up on Wednesday and I don't even know where I'm going. There was like, I, I was at court 42 inside a building. First of all, I couldn't find the, the, the place. I was like asking people, you know, where, where's this? I, th I think his name was John, but Beth is what I, I, because we became friends after. Well, really good friends. And so him and I now, I show up and he's sitting in the middle of, of, one, of, of one half of the court and he's got those baskets of tennis balls. He must have like 15 of them. <laughs> And I'm like, so I pull, I walk up. I'm like, hey, how's it going? He's like, here you go. This is what you're using today. And he gives me a racket with no strings. So I go like, really? I said, no strings? He goes, I'm going to bounce a ball at you. And all you're going to do is watch the ball go through the racket. And you're, I'm going to show you the, the form. Because you were, I was using my hands and my like more arms instead of like twisting. Anyways, we did that for for probably about three, well, like three sessions, so like three practices of an hour. And all I did was focus on my turn and watch the ball go through. And then when we started actually hitting the ball, I actually became not a bad tennis player. It was unbelievable. This guy was so good. Wow. And then he brought stuff on the ice, and he just – he elevated everything. Like He, he loved it too because it was a challenge, right? Yeah. Got cleared to play, and then the kind of rest is history, right? So it was, uh, it was an interesting process. So very scary, very up-and-down, roller coaster kind of a process. So you think about it, the tennis racket is much, much larger than the blade of a hockey stick and yeah. it's coming a bit slower. How are you able to adapt to play at the national hockey league level? Well, you're, the, there's the, uh, I guess the, the body, how a body can, uh, adapt. Right. And that's really what happens. My, my, my left eye is now under, it's like a 15, 20 now. Right. So your left, my left eye became stronger and adapted to my loss vision. And uh, honestly, I didn't even notice it when I was playing. It's not like I was a goal scorer to begin with anyway at the NHL <laughs> level. But I wasn't worried about that, right? So, <laughs> um, you know, and so it never, I guess, adapted. It became, you know, you, you, you practice and you, you create repetitions that, you know, everything is, becomes natural in any way, right? It's getting all those reps in over and over. And that's why when I'm even with young hockey players, I'm always like, when you're going on the ice and, and, it's, and it's just a rep, it's not really just a rep. You want to do it as good as you can. And you're not going to be as good as you can anyway, but you want to be as close as you can to make that rep count every time you do it. So. You found a way to get through that and you ended up playing 13 more years, um, you know, without really vision in that eye. So good for you. And then switching lanes here a little bit, uh, shifting away from hockey, you battled with addiction of drugs and alcohol, which landed you in rehab later in your career. Can you describe the road to sobriety and the struggles that came with it? Well, yeah, you know what, here, you know, and I tell that, you know, I have a son now that's, that's drafted with the Capitals and is trying to find his way. And, um, you know, you become, so you, I grew up uh, very in a small town. Uh, there was always alcohol. I was drinking at 13 years old, right? And when I got the opportunity to start almost where I saw my dream or wanted to play hockey, from the time I was like 16 years old till I was basically 21, I was really dedicated and didn't drink, right? I sacrificed a lot, like on the social aspect of, of, of being a young man or a young teenager, whatever you want to call it, you know what I mean, girls and everything else. But I, So I sacrificed a lot then. When the eye injury came along, when I got to New York, I, I, I remember I used to take $200 out every check for, and it would last me the full two weeks. I was, take, I was spending $400 a month. Wow. And I was making at that time in 80, would have been 88. I was making uh, 95000 right? 
So I saved a lot of money early in my career. And then when I got hurt with the eye injury, I had nothing to do. So what did I start doing? I was 21 years old. I just became of age in New York. I was able to go to bars. I was then all of a sudden you feel, you feel like pretty special, right? Cause now you're getting attention. And I was pretty, I was really well liked on the Island once even at the first year because of my style of play. And so I, I drank and I think what happened that, you know, in my era, everything, you, you, you know, after a game, they used to bring in like on, in a, in a five gallon pail, 24 beer on ice. Right. Yeah. In our fridge after practice, guys would have a beer. That was how it was. Mm-hmm. And then halfway through my career, you know, or more at the end of my, you know, that 28, when I was 20, you know, eight, nine years in, that's where, when things were starting to, re- when Pelly Lindbergh got killed in the uh, car accident, I don't know if you guys remember that. Mm-hmm. There was a goalie for the Philadelphia Flyers, Pelly Lindbergh. He got, he got killed when he, he, he wrapped his Porsche around a, a tree or something after landing, coming home from a, uh, returning from a trip from like a, a road trip. So because we had 24 beer in the, in, in the, in the, in the room, if you're on the road, you get, you, you get 24 beer on the bus, then you get on the plane and there's more beer there. So when you get off the, the plane, you're actually, you got a pretty good buzz if you're, if you're having a few pops, right? Yeah. So they took all that away. And I remember me and Al McKinnis, he still, we chuckled about it even in, in, in St. Louis, how, cause he, he was in that era where you, you would heard this, the, the, popping of like a cap off of a beer bottle because that's what guys were doing. And then now all you hear is blenders, right? <laughs> you come after the game and all you hear is blenders all the time. There's blenders everywhere. Guys have all their own little, you know, their recipes for themselves. And it's just trainers got to carry a couple extra things for blenders. And uh, it's, it's amazing how the game has changed. And, you know, so I, I drank and I was, I was, I was a drinker. But always, man, you know, like I was telling my son this actually a week ago. I said, here's, here's, my, here's me, Gary. Think about this, where my, my mindset changed. And I don't know how it changed or when it changed. I don't know where it happened in my career where all of a sudden alcohol was more important than actually, the, the, you know, I grew up playing this game that became, that gave me a pretty good lifestyle. And somewhere in that, in that, in that change, there was somewhere there and I don't know where it was. And I always, I do think about it where the power of, and that's the power. And I always tell young people this, that's the power of drugs and alcohol, right? It takes you, it makes you want it so bad that everything you love and me and cherish, you actually put to the side. And, and that's what happened with me. My career like I had the Islanders basically telling me in not so many words, listen, you're going to, cause I was an assistant captain for half my career. Right. So with the Islanders, they wanted me to be the captain. So here I am, I've got an NHL team saying, Hey, we want you to really, really what they're saying. We want you to be captain, but can you manage yourself? Cause I, when I did go out though, I never took young guys with me. I ran alone or with another teammate. Right. And I sat there and wasn't willing to sacrifice then this fun side of, of being a hockey, of a basically being famous maybe. But when I look back now, like the privilege of being a cap, an assistant captain is big, but to be a captain of a, any, like especially the New York Islanders. And I was not willing to sacrifice my lifestyle. That's, that's messed up when I look back. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that could, it would be such an honor to say that I was captain of the New York Islanders now, now that everything's a lot cl- clearer. And I didn't try my anything like weed or anything until I was 33 years old is when I first tried weed. And then I tried a, a, a line of Coke one night. And all of a sudden, I, 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 at the right end of my career, when I, just before the year I was with the Rangers, I didn't do it during the year. In that offseason, though, I started doing Coke and really liked it. And then when I went to the rain, to uh, St. Louis, I hurt my, I had a wrist injury and the wrist injury basically put me out for the whole year because I had a terrible break in my wrist. And so I missed another year, half, basically I played eight games for St. Louis and I was like, Jesus, I'm out again. And at that time, instead of like transitioning to be a coach and maybe 
the second part of my career, which I'm doing now, I looked at it as, and here's the, the, the alcohol and the drugs, whatever you want to call it, telling you, listen, you, you worked your butt off. You deserve to go have fun now. You deserve it. Like you, you've paid a price. You've lost your eye. You've lost part of vision in your eye. You've had, you know, wrist surgery already a few times. You need, you need to go have fun. And that's what I did. And I, I went to another place of like where honestly it was crazy. So I, I ended up going now doing Coke with St. Louis. So instead of like when you get hurt, a lot of times you pull yourself away from the team and, and because you, you don't feel part of it and it's hard to go to, it really is. But the worst thing you can do is actually that because now you isolate yourself away and you look and you, you meet people that you probably shouldn't be around. And that's what I did. And I was probably going to get arrested in St. Louis, but Kelly Chase heard about it. But my wife actually called me into the uh, NHLPA, and I didn't know that because she was worried about me. So when she told me that Saturday morning, that or it was Sunday morning, she told me, Rich, she goes, I called this guy Dan. His name's Dan, and everybody knows Dan. If he's around the, your team, obviously somebody in your team is in rehab of some kind, but it's supposed to be anonymous, right? And uh, dad was flying in that Sunday, but I was actually going to be getting arrested anyways. But then they couldn't arrest me now because I had basically checked myself in, right? Or Jackie did. And then, well, now the St. Louis Blues couldn't suspend me. It didn't become, it wasn't a, they couldn't do anything about it because they had to keep it anonymous, right? And so I basically did that and went, went into rehab there and, Really wasn't ready for it. Um, came back to St. Louis that following year and had to have two more surgeries on my wrist. Couldn't do drugs or anything. I had to be careful. I picked my spots. Couldn't wait for my career to be over at that time because I thought, Jesus, when this ends, I'm going to just look out. Here comes, I'm going to just enjoy life. And so at 35 years old, I'm now basically out of a job and okay with it, right? Checking the bank account, seeing if I have enough money. And my agent called me up. He said the Florida Panthers and the Islanders, and he goes, there was four, five, there was four teams. Boston, they were all kind of, they were all interested in maybe giving me a tryout. And he goes, what do you think? And I'm like, geez, yeah, I'll got with myself back. That's one thing I was always committed to working out, even though I played hard away from the rink. I actually, I, I was always committed to my work, and I still am now. I got back in shape, and, um, you know. And again, here's the power of drugs and alcohol. So I've now signed a contract with the Florida Panthers to a basically $800,000 guaranteed, whether I play pro or up. Um, it's a two-year gig. If I, they like me, they'll keep me for two years with an option. If I, if I play up, they're going to give me 1.5, right? But I'm guaranteed 800. And I'm in shape. I'm... You know, Mike Keenan at the time with the GM up there. And uh, the September, I was leave, a week before I was about to leave for camp, I didn't, I would, I was going to have to go back into, into the program. And I was fighting that hard and I didn't want to do it. So I went out and absolutely got blasted and loaded with everything. And I called up my, like, I was honestly, I, and I talked, I did a couple bumps before I called Mike Keenan up on the phone and said, listen, my wrist is too bad and I'm done retiring. Wow. And from that day, from that September 5th of that, that, that the rest of that year till the following that till June of the following year, I probably went as hard drinking and everything as I shouldn't be alive, honestly. And then I got to a point where I was, I knew I was out of control, couldn't stop it. And, and when people say, well, how can you just not stop? And it's unexplainable when you're, when you're in addictions, um, how you just, you had, you lose all control and you are, you're at the mercy of the drug. And the hardest thing to do for people around you that love you is to, they keep helping you because you become such a good con. And really the best thing to do and you're supposed to do it is basically shut the door on that. on Cause you're not really shutting the door on the person, which you are. And it's a hard thing to separate, but you're actually shutting the door on, on the drug itself. And I always tell people when you're, when you're dealing with somebody with addictions, the person, you know, at this time is not really that person. You're actually just pretend you're speaking to the drug, right? Because that's who's talking. 
and it's going to, and the drug's going to do whatever it takes to, to get what it wants. Right. So, um, whether it be alcohol or Coke or whatever it may be. And I didn't know how to stop it. And I knew I was, I was, I was bad. And I thought the only way I can end, I can do anything is by taking my life. So what I did was I to make sure my insurance was all in place. And the one night that I, I, I was, it was June, right to right at the end of June, June 18th. It was, I was like, you know what? I'm done. And I remember leaving the house going, that's, that basically saying goodbye to Jackie, leaving, I was going to get, you know, get drunk, but I, didn't, I knew I wasn't going to be coming home. And I absolutely went out and just got shit faced. I thought I'm even here's the, here's another part, the coward of, of, of me or the drug, or whatever you want to call it. Everybody knew I drank hard and I had fun. I was always a happy-go-lucky guy, but inside I was dying. And that's the thing with, with people you don't know. You know, everybody puts on this face that everything's okay and you're happy. And those are the guys you probably got to watch the most. Because inside a lot of times, especially if they're drinking or, you know, the guy that's always a fun guy, he's probably the guy. And, you know, you look at Robert Williams. He was another, right? I was that fun guy. But as, when I was alone, I hated myself in my own skin. I couldn't look. I hated the mirror. Right. Because I hated what I'd become because I knew what I was. I knew I always had a big heart, but I didn't have that anymore. I became something that I was not proud of. And so I tried to roll. I did. I rolled my truck and I broke my back in four places. I had three compression fractures, three compression fractures, my lower back. I went from being like I sat there and after it all happened, I'm like, fuck, I couldn't even kill myself. My God. Like, really? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I tried to end my life and I, but I wasn't willing to put a gun in my mouth, which I thought about, but I thought if I make it look like an act then everybody's going to feel sorry for me. And you know what I mean? I was worried about the insurance, right. For Jackie and kids, right. Mm-hmm. There's the craziness. You got a young family, but you can't cope. So you're going to do something like that. And you, by giving them, you know, I had a, a big insurance policy. I think I'm doing the right thing. Like that's crazy. Right. So you get into this place where, the drug kind of takes control, right? How were you able yeah. to get out of this mindset and how did you turn your life around? Well, basically, you know what, after the accident I had about, uh, I would say it was almost every full moon. So you go from laying on your back, being, you can't walk to barely walking to be in a lot of pain for like probably about two months of like, all of a sudden you basically walk away from an accident, which I did. And it was like a full moon. I'd go out and get drunk, but I wouldn't do any drugs. So I did that six times. And on June 18th, sorry, June 18th is when, um, or sorry, not June, November, November 4th of that same year. I got the accident on June, in June 18th with the accident, November 4th. So five, four or five months later, I end up, you know, I went to one AA meeting. I'm like, well, I'm not an alcoholic because those guys like, get drunk and they don't come home for like weeks. I get drunk, but I'm home. It might be late but or in the morning, but I'm home every night. Right. <laughs> so that was my just justifying it was that I wasn't an alcoholic. And then, you know what? I just um, was going through like withdrawals and, and really having a tough time. And, you know, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm religious, but I go to church and, you know, the, the thing with, um, I don't preach about God or anything like that, but I have a belief that there is a higher power. And a lot of people that, that struggle with addictions, usually if they don't have something that they believe in, usually because you need something to hand it over, whoever that is. And, you know, honestly, I, you know, I went to my meeting and I, the first meeting I went, I didn't talk. And then, um, you know, I went to about, I was there I, and I started talking about where I was at. And what happens is you get a month of clean, you feel better. If you can hit three months, it's a little bit of an But If you can get the six months, things even clear up a little bit more. And once you hit a year, it's actually, you're almost, not that you're close to being back to what you remember life to be. And it's hard to explain if you've never been through addictions, but that's what it is. And all of a sudden you start dealing with you and life again instead of like drinking it or, or putting it up your nose and not dealing with anything. And, you know, that was it. And I basically, I, if you want to call it serenity or whatever it was, there was some that I, I didn't, you know, it's not like the oceans all opened up and, you know, the song started playing that hallelujah, he's, I'm going to be okay. It wasn't like that. It was just all of a sudden for me, there was peace. There was, um, 
I get the chills when I talk about it because it's hard to explain. There was this sense that someone just was like telling me that everything was going to be okay. And I remember putting my hand, I had a Bible that I'd got and I don't read the Bible. I'd got it. So I, this is another thing where you believe like you, whether somebody's put in your path and I had this Bible that I've been moving around since I was, since I was 20 years old, I got it from the Raiders. Now I'm, I'm 35 years old and it's on my, on my, on my nightstand. Had the pair of hockey skates on. It was given to me from a gift from the Raiders, my junior team. And I just kind of put my hand on it and said, listen, I need help and I need this to be gone. And whatever I got to do, I will do. And honestly, from that day forward, I have not had the urge to drink. And that's like 16 years ago, man. So um, I went to AA for yeah, went to AA and, you know, I don't go to AA now, but anytime I do these things like this or when I talk to my team even and I talk about where I used to be, that's more than a meeting because it reminds me and brings me back and reflects to where I was that I, I definitely don't ever want to go back there, right? Doesn't mean I'm perfect because I'm not even close to that, but I'm definitely at a better place now than, than I was when I was doing the shit I was doing, so. Yeah. So very fortunate and very thankful. Now that you are sober, you volunteer in a program that encourages kids to avoid substance abuse. Why do you feel it's important to share your story and help younger generations not go down the same road? Well, because there's always like, you know, and this is a part, and this, you know, I you went to you guys, I'm, I know, I'm pretty sure you guys aren't married yet, <laughs> but you know, you have kids and you have your parents, your, you know, your parents, so you, 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 as a parent, you sit there and you go, your parents tell you, you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't do this. How many, how many times have you heard that? Right. A million. So what happens is as of when you become a parent, what you're really doing or they're doing, or I'm doing whatever you want to call it, you're telling your, your son or daughter that you've made those probably mistakes and you don't, because you're everybody, my son's going to make his own mistakes. My daughter's going to make her own mistakes but you're hoping that the mistakes that you made that they can learn from you because it, because they're going to have their own shit to deal with. So hopefully they can steer away from the shit that you went through. And that's what your parents are doing to you guys are right. Cause they've probably been through some shit and they're just telling you that because you're going to have your own shit to deal with. Yeah. And uh, I do that. I talk to kids because you just never know. Uh, you don't know anybody's where they're at and that's why I'm, you know, to me, when I, one of my models with, with the Red Wings and is that, and when I recruit players is that I don't care what color you are. I don't care how much money you have, whether you have some, don't have some, I don't care. The only thing, things I care about is how hard you're willing to work and how you treat other people. That's it. And as, and I tell them, if you can do those two things, you will never have a problem with me. Um, so, um, and me being a coach now and coaching young men, I, I'm tr- yeah, I'm trying to make them a better hockey player, but I'm just trying to make them a better human. And my, I won't know that till like 15 years from now, hopefully. And one of these young men remembers something that we did in Weyburn that they go, I learned this from Rich. And they, and hopefully they come back and thank me. And I hope they're a doctor or they're doing, or they own their own company, something. You know, we want to, cre- I want to create some good people that are going to leave the program and learn that this is how you treat other people. Right. So, mm-hmm. yeah. That's all. Awesome. Not going to work with Connor, though, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, you haven't gotten away from the game. You know, you've been in it from a young age and you're still coaching now. It's very hard to get out of. Um, you were quoted saying in another interview that the ho- hockey is the greatest game on earth to you. Why did you say that? And what life skills slash traits did you t- uh, did the game teach you? Well, what, what the game teaches you is it teaches you to be part of a team. And when you look at you two right now, are you guys part of a team? Yep. Kind of? Yep. You guys are. Yeah, so, Garrett's in college and I'm playing pro next year. Yeah, so sports in general teach you that. They teach you to be part of a team. They teach you to, be, to sacrifice your own personal goals sometimes for what's best for the team. And when you become part of a company or you own your own company, you're going to want your 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 workers or your players to sacrifice everything for the good of the team. And that's what happens. That's what hockey does. That's what sports and team sports do in general. And what I've learned from the game, and this is for anybody that's trying to be a pro at any level or to be the best they can be, is that you, 
everything you put into it, you will get back tenfold. It may not be when you think you're going to get it or at the time you want it personally, but if you keep doing the right thing, you persevere, you keep working hard, things will come back. You just got to be patient and, 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 and believe in the, in the journey. That's it. Yeah. Your journey has been amazing. Uh, but now you're, you are a dad and you mentioned that your son Garrett was drafted in the third round to the Washington Capitals in 2016. How cool was that to see your son go to the NHL like you did? And was there any special advice he got along his, his journey? Well, we're fighting right now, so <laughs> <laughs> we're not fighting, but we're discussing because he's in his second year pro. You, you play hockey too, then? Yep, we both do. You both do? So you guys, here's the thing with, with hockey and players and, and any, you think about the sacrifice you made to work out, to not drink, to drink some days, and, you know, you see your friends having a gay old time, and there's, there's huge sacrifices. And I said to Garrett, I said, and, and we've been having discussion because he's basically been told from Todd Reardon, who's now fired, what he has to do. To, to make the next jump. Like they see him as a third line center at the pro level for the Capitals. Yeah. But he hasn't come into the, sh- not the best shape, but he's progressed and he's doing all the right things, but he's too nice. Like I said to him, I said, you can't, you know, I, I try and help him a little bit, but I, but it's so hard when you, when he's got a, sh- you know, me being an ex NHLer, and now he's, he's trying to create his own, his own, his own, put, leave his own footprint with dad trying to give him advice every now and then, but trying to stay out of his way. It's like, you're always seems like you're on eggshells a bit because I don't want to offend him or make him feel bad because he's not there yet. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's a different beast now in hockey because with the cap, there's just so many moving parts, but he's, his work ethic is good, but still not enough to me. And I told him that actually today I said, Garrett, I said, I worked out two a days for half of my career. If I, if I wouldn't have been drinking, and I didn't tell him this, but if I wouldn't have been drinking to have, the reason I did two a day is because I was committed that I didn't want to not make the, I was on a two way contract for 10 out of my 15 years in the NHL. Cause I never asked for a one way ever. Wow. And Milbury finally gave it to me. And honestly, that's that fucking two way kept me honest to some degree. Right. Yeah, because when you get this one way, you get you get complacent. I got complacent and almost blew everything up. And I said to him, I said, you got to go to two a days. Like you get, your body needs three to four hours and you redo, you reset. And you get the rest you need. There's so many things. And in today's NHL and in today's hockey world, somebody's doing that. And a lot of people are doing that. And it's still that 1% that make it only, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, I look at it. I'm a, I'm really detailed. I'm, I'm OCD. I deal with depression still. I'm honest about that. I, I deal with stuff, anxiety. It's all part of my makeup because I, I'm always trying now, even being sober, I, I, I believe I'm doing the right thing, but I still, I think deep inside you want to be perfect. Everybody does, right? Be good at your job and feel like you're doing the right things. And so for me, I consider myself as whether I like it or not, I'm an overachiever because I did play at that level for a long time. And as and a lot of a lot of players in the NHL, coaches that coach you guys are probably like that. Most of them, they're they're overachievers, and they can't stand underachievers. So for me personally, I'm basically always looking for overachievers and guys that are going to do what's best for the team but I also don't want them to change who they really are. So my son, Garrett got to figure out that. And I don't know, I can't make him do it. I can only tell him and give him a little bit of advice and it's really hard. But when I've been there and I already know what it takes until you're there, you don't know. You think, you know, but nobody really knows till you're there. Right. And I know what I had to do. And he is for me, he's got to do more away from the, from the rink. So, but he's going to have to figure that out because you can go from making 70,000 or do you want to make a million or more? Right. Yeah. It's a big difference. I love what you said there. And I think it's Nick Saban. That's uh, I've been heard quoting saying it and it's uh, 
mediocre people don't like high achievers and high achievers don't or high achievers don't like mediocre people. And I think that's essentially what you were trying to say there. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. And I think yeah. that's great advice for anyone. It's, it's cool hearing your side from it because obviously Sean and I are still chasing the game. As he mentioned, he's playing pro hockey and I'm still in college yeah. with aspirations to play pro. So it's cool that, you know, even back in your day, um, as we mentioned before, the game was so much different, but you were still putting in two a day workouts just to, you know, make that dream become a reality and think about yeah. how much the game has grown since and how, how much more work and skill and everything else that goes into the game. Um, so I love that you're saying that we have to put in more effort, to be honest, it's a little motivating for me to try to find ways to put more into the game. And as you said, what you put into it, you'll get out. So and it really, it's not, it's, 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 it's hard. It's hard to, let's say, have a 10 o'clock workout, be done by 12 for your first workout. You think you got the rest of the day, but now you got to go back and work out at 4 or 5 o'clock at night, right? That, that, what kind of life do you have? And I said to Garrett today, I said, Garrett, I go, this is your job. And it's the best job in the world if you can make it. It really is. You can ask any pro athlete, an NFL, from being an American League player to a pro to a pro player to being like in the NHL or in the NFL to the it is it's you go from treat to carrying your own bag to be say, being treated like a god and everything is the best of the best you got the best coaches so when I tell young people I go listen I said I'm not t- I tell you my resume at times because or even when I do skills with these young kids that don't even know who I am listen I I learned from the best coaches in the world, more than likely. Al Arbor, some really good coaches. And I take you take a little bit from every one of them and you try and pass it on to somebody, right? And if I had to learn anything, because I'm an older guy, I'm 52 now, everybody thinks I'm hardcore and I'm freaking tough as nails and I'm, you know, I'm a drill. I am exactly the opposite. I'm all about negotiating with the players. I'm all about, listen, here's where you stand. I'm going to be bluntly, brutally honest with you. But I said, if I feel like you're taking a shortcut anywhere, which is underachieving for me, you will pay a heavy price, whatever that is. Whether I sit you right away or I, I, I'm not afraid to send someone to the dressing room because they're not willing to put in the effort. If your effort sucks or it only has 50% and that's all you give, then perfect. But if, you're, if you have more and you're holding on to more, then you're going to have a problem with me. So. Yeah. You talked about being a high achiever and an overachiever in your career, doing those two-a-day workouts and everything extra. How do you continue to be a high achiever now that you're a coach in your day-to-day life? Well, you know, I, I think about hockey every minute of the day. If I'm not watching hockey, I'm trying to figure out how to make my team better or our team or we or whatever with the coaches. Um, it's a, it's, this has been fun for me again. Like I, I kind of was getting stalled there for a while. And once this fell again, this fell in my lap kind of sort of way, you become a GM of an organization. It's a lot of fun. It's fun being around. It make the young guys make you young again. Um, it's fun watching players like Connor Carroll develop, you know, because no one was really giving him a chance. And I, you know, I gave him a chance, gave him ice time, gave him, but he deserved it. He worked hard. He's actually not a bad guy. You know what I mean? He's actually, He's fun to be around and um, it's fun watching those guys develop. And that's where for me now to make my, you know, I'm trying, you know, the job of the GM and a coach, so the coach, you're, you're it's about making your team better as a GM. It's putting the team, the GM's job is to put the team together, but also know the rest of the league. And that's where I right now is a hard thing, right? Because you don't have time to basically, because the GM's full-time job is to know what every team's got and what they're made of. So you need to build your team to be able to beat certain teams, right? Who you think the best team is, you know? So um, that's, that is what I'm doing now is trying, you know, I'm trying to get, because of this, this damn COVID is trying to get our schedule set up for, for this season. And how do we manage this bringing these guys in early? And so we're treating like a hockey Academy and, you know, it's like, you guys know that if we're not playing for till November 15th, I mean, October 15th, I got, basically almost five weeks with these guys and 18, 19, 20 year olds when girls and booze is important. Like the, this is what I found out with that. You have the, so you guys are still chasing You guys have the dream. 
you're de more dedicated. Whereas my junior A guys, they're in a, in a position where if they don't get to college, they're just playing hockey because they don't know what they want to do in life. So what I'm doing with my camp is that I'm basically for the next five weeks, it's going to be hell for five weeks for them because the guys that want to quit because I had two guys quit in December on the team because life got hard on our team for with me. I'm making that happen at the start. And if they can't handle this next five weeks, then they want to quit hockey, get on with life. I'm actually doing them a favor. So they don't quit on the team halfway through the year. So. Weeding out the mediocre. I love it. Yeah. Rich, we can't thank you enough for coming on. One unbelievable story, obviously a great hockey career that you had. Um, you know, very cool to see your, your success now through facing addiction with alcohol and drugs. We would just want to extend a congratulations to you and a best of luck on that journey. Um, yeah, I've had you. family members that have suffered with addiction and everything that you said really hit home for me. Um, we wish you the best of luck with you and your team this year. Hopefully everything starts up soon and we get through this coronavirus pandemic here shortly. Uh, and we'll be following you guys. Yeah, you know what? And can you guys send me your full names and where you guys are playing also? Just to kind of – yeah, I would like to hear just to I'll keep uh, tabs on you guys if that's all right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, wish you guys luck too in your career. And, yeah, if you guys ever need anything, don't uh, – now that we've made contact with any kind, whether you need advice on something. Um, I talked to a lot of players that I – you know, um, if you want any advice, if, if you've got any question, the worst thing to, to, as a player – and this is me dealing with my own kid – it's the hardest thing in the world to knock on the coach's door some days and find out where you stand because you may not want the truth. Right. But it's the best thing in the world because that's the only way you can find out what you need to do to change. Yeah. Definitely gives you a sense of direction. Yeah. So, all it's right. Funny Thanks, yeah. It's funny you mentioned the Islanders. The, I went to Mercer's last year, but long Island university, it's their first year division one next year. And I'm actually transferring for my last year there. So I'll be out that way. So if you have any restaurants or anything good out there, let me know. Oh yeah. I got some. Yeah. I'll, you know what? I'll give you a, a contact to my buddy, big daddy, Richie Salgado. Oh, perfect. Big daddy. Really big, big daddy. Yeah. Really good guy. And he's just, he's a hockey guy. He's a, He's, he's involved more in the NFL side of things, but he knows all the NFL guys, but he's a really he lives on the island. Yeah. So perfect. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, thank you so much, Rich. Yeah. Thank you guys. All right. Take care guys. We'll yeah. be in touch. Yeah. Good luck. Bye. Bye.